Well, good morning to you again this Lord's Day, and a special welcome to our friends who are joining us for our service. Trust that uh, you'll be encouraged during our time together um, as we worship our Lord together. Um, But it's a joy to to be behind the pulpit once again, and I'm excited to continue uh, this study that we've begun as a church body. Uh, For the past month, we've been going through a series called Church 101, and what we wanted to do is we wanted to introduce to you what our church is about. What are the essentials of this church? What are the distinctives of San Francisco Bible Church? And Pastor Henry has pointed out in the first couple of weeks that our church is firstly about disciple-making. It's about fulfilling the Great Commission both individually and corporately. But secondly, the church is also about speaking the Word of God to one another in the power of God, and we saw that last week. And last but not least, I want to suggest to you this morning that our church is about the gospel. We are about the gospel. The gospel simply means good news. It is the news concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is the message of the Christian faith. And I realize that for many of us, when we come before the topic of the gospel, the temptation is to say in our hearts, Gospel? Again? I know the gospel. I believe in it. I hear it all the time. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says about the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 8, he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He is saying the gospel message that he is to preach, its truths are unsearchable. It is endless. It is infinite. That we can never behold all of its riches. And this is why Martin Luther concludes with this, the gospel cannot be preached enough and heard enough, for it cannot be grasped well enough Moreover, he speaks to preachers that our greatest task is to keep faithful to this article and to bequeath this treasure to you when you die. It was Jerry Bridges who says that we must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. See, if there's anything in life that we should be passionate about that should take first place, it is the gospel. And that is our conviction that the gospel would be central to our church and in our ministry and in our lives. As believers, we ought to grow in our understanding of the gospel, to love the gospel of our Lord and Him more and more each day, and then be changed by the gospel as we live in light of it. And that is my hope for us this morning, as we continue to walk together as a church through the Word of God. And so for our time together, I want to take you to Matthew chapter 20 of your Bibles. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 20. And here Jesus is teaching a parable. And as you know, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus would often tell stories that his audiences could relate to. But contained in it are spiritual truths that he wanted to convey. 
This parable reveals to us some important truths about the nature of the gospel, about who God is and how it affects us. And so as we turn there, as we look to Matthew 20 this morning, let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer and let's ask for his help. So let's pray. Father, we do come before you humbly and we ask that you administer to our hearts now. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts ready to receive your word. And let us walk away transformed as we come before the power and the ministry of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A familiar story is told that during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what was unique about the Christian faith. And so they began discussing amongst themselves, was it sovereignty? And they said, well, no, because they realized that other religions share in this idea of God as creator and sustainer of the world. Yes, was it the incarnation? And again, they said no, because other religions had different versions of gods who appeared in human form. They asked, was it the resurrection? And again, they concluded that other religions had accounts of those also returning from death. So the debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis walked into the room. And he asked, what's this that you're debating? And so they told them that they were discussing Christianity's unique quality among world religions. And Lewis responded, well, that's easy. It's grace. Lewis was absolutely right. Grace is what distinguishes the gospel from all other religions. See, inherent in the religions of the world is a belief system of salvation by works. That you can somehow earn God's favor by what you do and how much you do and and where you do it. So that religion teaches that a person merits their salvation and heaven and the afterlife or nirvana or enlightenment or whatever your end goal is, is dependent upon your good deeds, your morality, your obedience. But this is what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ that he comes to preach so unique and so glorious is that according to Paul, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. See, grace is what makes the gospel distinct and God so glorious. Uh, The Greek word for grace is charis, uh, which is where my wife's name Carissa comes from. It's Carissa, not Clarissa, okay? It's it's Caris, not Claris, okay? So just FYI, okay? But it describes God's unmerited favor towards sinners. That's grace. And our Lord Jesus Christ often spoke of it. And it was this characteristic of the gospel that he highlights in this passage of Matthew 20. 
You notice here as we look at Matthew 20, our Lord, he won't define grace for us. Rather, he illustrates it because of how rich it is. And he does so in the form of this story to teach us much about who God is and his grace and how we are to respond. So I want to begin by walking through this parable and then drawing some principles from it. As Nathan, as I'm doing that, I actually have some slides that I've prepared, and so I'm going to get that ready for us. Thank you. And so uh, let's, let's read through Matthew 20 and verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Verse 1 sets the context of this parable for us. Jesus tells a story to illustrate what the kingdom of heaven is like. And in this story is a landowner who has a vineyard and is in need of laborers. At this time, it's likely September and it's harvesting season. The weather was still hot and so it became necessary to gather grapes before the rainy season of fall came. So harvesting was in great demand at this time. The workday was usually from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And so while this owner, he goes out, it says, at the first hour, at 6 a.m., and he goes to the marketplace to hire laborers for his vineyard. And there would be men standing out at the marketplace. It would maybe be like a scene from the time of the Great Depression, where you would see men lining up at the docks waiting for someone to hire them for a job. These laborers were usually unskilled. They didn't have much to offer. And they were desperate for work that day. So the master went to the marketplace and saw these men on this particular day. And he would say, you, 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 and you, come and work in my vineyard. He sets the terms. The payment would be one denarius. And that would have been a very fair wage. In fact, a generous Wage, especially for unskilled workers. And so these men agree. And in verse 2, it says, He then sent them into his vineyard to begin work. But then three hours later, at the third hour, which is 9 a.m., the landowner goes back out to the marketplace to find more workers. It says in verse 3, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. Nobody has hired them. They're unemployed, and they're looking for some work too. And so to those, in verse 4, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so in verse 5, it says they went. No negotiation of wages takes place the landowner simply promises them rightful pay for appropriate work. And off they went to the vineyard. But then the story goes, the master comes back out to the marketplace on three more occasions. He goes out again at noon, at 3 p.m., and he goes back out at 5 p.m. to the marketplace. 5 p.m., one hour before the end of the workday. And he sees men still standing there at this hour. And so he asked in verse 6, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one 
has hired us. And so he says, you go into the vineyard too. For whatever reason, he decides to hire those men on the spot at the end of the day and promises them rightful pay for just even one hour of work. And so you can imagine they're thrilled to have been hired at this late in the day. And so that's the story. A landowner hires five successive waves of workers at 6 a.m., at 9 a.m., at 12 p.m., at 3 p.m., and then at 5 p.m., and he sends them to work in his vineyard. But now, it's 6 p.m. The bell is rung, the whistle's blown, it's the end of the workday, and everyone is gathered in line to get paid. But a couple of interesting things happen here. First, in verse 8, it says, And when evening came... The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. The landowner asked his foreman to pay the last hired workers first. You think, isn't that a little odd? Usually, we'd pay workers in the order of hiring the first to the last. But this landowner instead gives specific instruction to do the opposite. The workers who are hired last are to get paid first. And those who are hired first get paid last. And so these men who work for one hour, maybe less than an hour, if you kind of factor in travel time from the marketplace to the vineyard, they're in the front of the line. And those who work all 12 hours of the day are in the back. And so that's unusual. But then a second unusual thing happens. Verse 9, it says, And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. So the workers who were hired at the end of the day worked less than one hour. They get one denarius. How do you think they reacted? Like, dude, this is amazing. Okay, we work less than an hour, and we get an entire day's wage. Unbelievable. Life is good. Okay, so that's probably how they felt. Right Now, how do you think those in the back of the line felt? They see this, and they're probably elbowing each other. Like, this is awesome. Okay, if they get one denarius for one hour of work, Do the math. We work 12 hours. That's 12 denarii, okay? This is our lucky day, fellas, okay? We're going to have a little extra in the bank. Okay, going to buy that new iPhone 1, okay, back in the day, okay? We're going to have a happy commute home, okay? And then they get to the front of the line. Foreman says, here you go, a denarius. What? You can imagine the shock and disappointment they had. Well, you don't even have to imagine because they didn't hide it. They actually complained out loud. It says in verse 11 this, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us 
who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And the master replies to this group of men. And this is really the heart of the story. And so let's read on to finish this account. In verse 13, he replied to one of them. Notice what he calls him. Friend. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. That's a parable. It's a simple story. But we know that it's much more than that. Jesus tells us this parable to teach us some rich truths that speak to the grace of God. And so I want to draw several principles about grace from this account. And I believe the first deals with God. We learn a great deal about the character of our Lord, and in particular, the grace of God is shown in the eternal life that he gives to sinners. See, this parable is really about God. He is front and center in this story, and our Lord is unmistakably cast here as the landowner. He is the master of the estate. And Jesus has us focus on this landowner who gives generously. And what he gives generously is this, eternal life. He gives salvation. He gives the hope of heaven. That's what this denarius in the story represents. How do we know this? Well, this parable is a continuation of what Jesus has been teaching on in the chapter before in Matthew 19. And there we have the account of the rich young ruler. And if you remember verse 16 of Matthew 19, he asks our Lord this question as he approaches him. He says, teacher, What good deed must I do to have what? Eternal life. See, that's a topic of discussion here. And so from there, Jesus begins teaching on eternal life, and then he tells this story about the vineyard to illustrate truths surrounding eternal life. And he highlights specifically God's compassion and his love and his grace towards sinners as the one who gives eternal life. This truth is found throughout the entire story. Jesus cast in this story not only the landowner, but notice the hired workers as well. And as we saw, life for them was desperate. That they were in the marketplace tells us that they were in need of some kind of work. They were near the bottom of the social economic scale, just above beggars. They were unskilled. They were untrained. They were unemployed except for one day at a time, working from job to job to job. So they didn't have much to offer. So each morning, they would line up to the marketplace in hopes of being hired. 
And on this particular morning, the landowner, he goes out and he finds these men waiting there. And so he brings them in to his vineyard to work. And at that point, nothing really seems out of the ordinary. But it's what happens in the third hour and beyond that tells you something about this landowner. This man goes back out not once, not twice, not three times, but four times more to bring more workers to his vineyard. And each time he found them, it emphasizes that these workers were what? Idle. Not that they were willfully idle, but they couldn't find work. And they waited. And it was this landowner himself who initiates, who seeks out, who calls for these laborers and brings them in. The question that you might ask is, why does he keep coming back out? Does he not know how many people it takes to harvest? Does he not have proper foresight and plan accordingly? Why does he journey back each time to the marketplace? You would think after a while, he would say, okay, there's X number of acres of land. It takes so many people working so many hours to pick X number of grapes. Okay, so why does he keep coming back out? The only answer to this is that he represents God. And he's coming back not because he needs more workers, but because he wants to give work. He wants to give a denarius. He goes to the marketplace and he sees them in their situation, unhired, unwanted, unneeded. And his heart breaks for them. And he has compassion for them on these workers who really had nothing to offer. I mean, this is so evident that the quality of workers available lessens as the day progresses and each time he comes out. See, the young, the strongest, and the capable are those likely gone first on any occasion. And yet this landowner, he goes and he finds these second, third, fourth-tiered men. These were the ones idle. And remember, he asked them, why are you idle? And he tells them, because no one wants us. They were the leftovers, the scraps for work because they are older. They were slower. They were less capable. And they didn't have much to offer. And yet the landowner looks upon them with a heart of compassion. And he tells them, you too, go to the vineyard. Do my work. And whatever is right, I will give to you. And with gratitude, they go. And he does this up until the very last group of workers. When there's only an hour left in the workday, and he says to them, I don't, I don't need you. You can't really do much for me at this time. You won't contribute much to my vineyard. But I want to take you anyway. I want to set you to work. And I want to pay you. And for us, do you see 
that this was us in the marketplace. The marketplace is where the religion of works has left each of us looking for more work to do. So we go back to what I mentioned about religion. For many people, whether religious or not, they hold to this sort of belief system found in almost all religion that says in order to go to heaven, you simply believe something about God, do more good than bad, and then hope for the best when you die. It's based on this premise that we do good things to be saved. We earn our way to heaven, and somehow we can merit eternal life. And so we believe this, and, and we go about life, and we try to be kind, and we love our neighbor, we obey the law, we recycle and help the environment. Whatever deed that you determine is good. And you are trusting in yourself and in what you do to be accepted by God. But a question that I ask people all the time is how much good is enough? How much good must you do to make up for your bad? How much right do you need to outweigh the wrongs? And at what point do you realize that you've tipped the scales in your favor? And all the people that I talk to can never, ever give me a definitive answer. They say, I don't know. It's not up to me to decide. It's for God. So meaning, up until they die, there is no certainty that they've ever done enough in this lifetime to be accepted by God. But the reality is, as sinners, what we do is never enough. We will always fall short because the standards of a holy and perfect God are too high. It is perfection. We can try to come to God and bring our works, but we will never make it because the distance is too far. We are too flawed, and we can never do enough to earn heaven. And the result is not being with God. It is separation from God with this end in an eternal hell. To realize that, that there is a consequence for sin and falling short, and, and it is judgment. And this judgment that the Bible speaks of is an eternal death that no amount of works can save us from. See, we were hopeless. But it is here that God meets us in the marketplace. Religion tells us that we must come to God, but the gospel tells us that God has come to us. God sees us in our sin, in our need, and he sees our desperate situation. And God would have been justified to say, they put themselves there, and they justly deserve what they get. Instead, he looks upon us, and he has mercy. He comes to the marketplace of this world and seeks to bring those into his kingdom. Not because he needed us. That is clear, especially with those who worked the last hour. No, not because he needed us. 
but because he loved us. He seeks after us. And he calls us to himself. And more than that, he has made a way for us to be brought into the kingdom. The Bible tells us that God would provide a savior for our sin. And he sends his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to be our substitute. And he goes to the cross And there he dies in our place, taking the judgment that you and I deserve. The Bible tells us that he rose again on the third day. He shows his power. He demonstrates that he is God incarnate. And as the living God, he promises that if you renounce your sin and works, and instead trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, that you can be saved. See, God is looking for those who are willing to say with a humble heart, we're not good enough. He wants a heart that says, I have nothing. I can do nothing. I offer nothing. But I need God for all things. God seeks those who don't trust in themselves for salvation, but who trust him and who throws himself at the mercy of God. And it is when men and women are at this place and acknowledge their sin and their need for grace and mercy that God will bring us to his vineyard. And there he will give us eternal life. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 says this, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. God impresses to us the fertility of the religion of works where man tries to do as much as he can to be saved and instead he points us to the gospel of grace where God has done it all for us to be saved in Christ Jesus. God shows forth his grace in the eternal life that he gives to sinners such as you and me. Second, we see that God's grace is also manifested diversely. This parable is told to show how grace is given to all people. Those who are the recipients of this grace, of eternal life in this parable, are so diverse. They are those who come from different backgrounds and have different experiences and different lengths in their walk with God. In this parable, some workers worked long hours, some worked a 12-hour day. Some worked a nine-hour day. Some worked six hours. Some worked three. Some, again, worked less than an hour. But in the end, they all received the same. But the issue and the emphasis isn't just on how long and the length of time, but it's the experience. You go back to this parable. Some of the workers worked all 12 hours. But it wasn't so much the length of time that they were concerned with, but notice their response upon receiving the same one denarius as everyone else. Verse 12. These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. See, what they appealed to before the master wasn't to how long they worked, but how hard they worked. These men bore the burden of the day. 
They were under the scorching sun. They felt the oppressive heat of Palestine. And it was painful labor for them. They were hungry and they were thirsty. They were tired. These men had worked long and hard for their denarius. And what this really illustrates is this truth. That there are believers who come to faith in Christ in some very difficult places in the world. And they have endured much suffering. And their labor is hard. And they've sacrificed much, even their lives. See, this parable is in fact hold as a response to what Peter says in chapter 19 right before. In verse 27, he says, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What then will we have? And so Jesus affirms their sacrifice. And he acknowledges that they have given up everything to follow him. And so he says this in verse 20, uh, verse. 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or their mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold on top of receiving eternal life. See, the disciples counted the cost of following Jesus. And it is a sobering truth that we're reminded of. And that at times we forget that at this very moment now where we are enjoying the freedom to worship, there are believers around the world who are in bondage, who are persecuted, and are being martyred for their faith. The statistics are staggering, and they tell us a lot. Just a few facts here. Christians, according to studies, are the most persecuted religious group in the world. More Christians were martyred in the 20th century than all other centuries combined. An average of at least 180 Christians around the world are killed each month for their faith. Christians in more than 50 countries face persecution from their governments, and they're, they're called what's restricted areas. In 41 of the 50 worst nations for persecution, Christians are being persecuted by Islamic extremists. You hear in the news about ISIS and Boko Haram and Al-Qaeda. For them, one of the primary targets for their attacks is church. And it is claimed that 105 thousand Christians are martyred for their faith each year with many more who suffer and die unaccounted for who are forgotten or are largely unknown yet I want to contend we must know it's easy for us to turn a blind eye and not want to think about what's happening out there but it's important that as believers, we are aware of what's happening in the body of Christ. For Paul tells us, when one member suffers, all suffer together, for we are one body. 
We ought to know who our brothers and sisters are that we might bear the burden with them, that we might stand with them, that we might pray for them. In fact, we are instructed to. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 13. He tells us, remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. I remember being challenged early on by roommates of mine in college to know about the persecuted church and to pray for these believers around the world. And at this time, I was introduced to the life and ministry of Richard Wormbrandt. And I read his story in a book entitled Tortured for Christ. And it's actually available online for free if you go to persecution.com. But he eventually founded the ministry Voices on Martyrs, whose ministry continues today after his death with this clear mission to assist the persecuted church of the world. His writings made such an impact on the church and it brought a sort of awareness to what's going on in the world. This man was regarded as the voice of the persecuted church. He was called the St. Paul of the Iron Curtain. His story, if I can just share in brief, Richard Wormbrandt, was in prison for 14 years in communist Russia. And there he was in prison for his faith in Christ. His wife, Sabina, was also in prison for three years as a labor slave. While in prison, he went through horrific tortures at the hands of the secret police. And he would share some of those experiences. He said the tortures and brutality continued without interruption. And in ensuing years, in several different prisons, they broke four vertebrae in my back and many other bones. They carved me in a dozen places. They burned and cut 18 holes in my body. For three of those years, he was held in solitary confinement in a cell some 35 feet underground. And he said that he kept sane by preaching himself a sermon every night. But he says that it was there that we developed a sense of responsibility toward them, those being his persecutors. And it was in being tortured by them that we learned to love them. He said that I have seen Christians in communist prisons with 50 pounds of chains on their feet, tortured with red-hot iron pokers, in whose throats spoonfuls of salt had been forced, being kept afterward without water, starving, whipped, suffering from cold, and yet praying with fervor for the communists. He says this is humanly inexplicable. It is the love of Christ that explains this, which was poured out in our hearts, end quote. He used that opportunity during those years of hardship to love his persecutors, to minister to fellow prisoners, and to win souls for Christ. I want to tell you that men like Richard Wormbrandt are heroes of the faith. And we must know about them so that their lives would humble and inspire us. 
And I take time to share a little bit of Wormbrand's story because here's the thing. It's so easy for these facts about the persecuted church to be just a statistic. But it's another thing when we can put a name and a face and a story to these statistics. And to know that Christians like Richard Wormbrand have been and continue to be persecuted all over the world. That believers are opposed and they are tortured and they are slaughtered. And yet many of them, they stand fast. And they die for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you that they are those workers in this parable who have worked hard, who have suffered much, who have sacrificed greatly under the harsh sun in the vineyard. And they stand in contrast to those who work the one hour in the cool evening breeze. Those like the thief on the cross. The one who turns to Jesus, if you remember, right before his death and says in Luke 22, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man is is hanging there. He's dying on the brink of death. And he says that I want to repent. I want to believe. I want eternal life. And Jesus says to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This man, who was a criminal for his entire life, wronging people, hurting people, committing evils, people like him will turn to Christ in this last chapter of their lives, will believe upon Christ, and they will get the same eternal life as those who suffer all their lives for the sake of Christ. And we ask this question, is that fair? Brothers and sisters, the answer is no, it's not fair. It's grace. It's encouraging, right, in some ways, because you can be here and up until now, your life has been one of distance from God. You've been living for other pursuits. Your life has been one full of mistakes and regrets. And our Lord assures us that that there's grace for you as well. And you can turn to Christ at any moment in your life for eternal life. Well, my question is where are those like Stephen, Paul, and John Huss, and William Tyndale, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and Richard Wormbrand, where are those Christians today? They're in heaven, enjoying rewards, much rewards and the bliss of eternity. They're in the presence of the Lord, and they're experiencing His pleasure, and they've come to know the full joy of their salvation. They are those workers in this parable who have worked hard and have suffered and sacrificed greatly during the day in the vineyard. And you know what? Not everyone suffers for Christ in that way like this thief, and even like us. There are those who serve Christ in contrast in the coolness of the evening breeze. 
Others, like many of us who serve Christ, where there is seemingly no sacrifice for their whole lifetime. They are born in free and prosperous nations. They have jobs. They accumulate wealth. They have their own homes. They drive nice cars. They have good health. They can go on vacation anywhere in the world. They're living in complete religious liberties. They can live out their faith and freedom without any fear of persecution. You look at us, and to my knowledge, we have not shed one drop of blood for the gospel. Sure, I've been criticized. I've been disowned by my parents for a time. I've endured some mild hostility. But I have not shed one drop of blood for the gospel. Because I am one of those who have labored in the cool evening breeze of the vineyard. And I think to myself, is that fair? Is that fair that I would receive this one denarius, eternal life, and the glories of heaven with all those who went through so much suffering? Is that fair? No, friends. That's not fair. It's grace. That is the grace of God in the gospel. Why would God allow for us to suffer so little compared to those in the world? Why would God bless us with so much when there are so many people who have so little? Why would God allow us to enjoy what we have while others are deprived? We don't know. It is only by his grace. And all we can do is we bow our knees and we praise him and we thank our Lord. In much the same way that those who worked at 6 a.m. are to be grateful as those who worked at 5 p.m. and received eternal life, where we learn here that it is all of grace. This leads to the third and final point, and, and there's a practical application here. And it's a broader one, but it's, it's simply that the grace of God is to affect the way we see life. Uh, and the point is to remind us that the gospel message isn't just a, a set of facts. Okay? This isn't just a story that I tell here and that Jesus tells us for us to intellectually know. See, it is to, it is to affect the way that we live. This is what it means to be gospel-centered, that knowing and beholding and celebrating grace, it changes us. and It affects how we see all of life specifically. Look here, when it came time for the first workers to receive their pay, they took exception. And look at verse 12, and this is what it says. These last workers worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But you replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? The master is saying this. He says that, hey, I've kept my end of the deal. He was just. He did no wrong. They agreed to a denarius and they received it. 
And what he chooses to pay this latter group of workers was completely and exclusively his business, and he was perfectly within his right to do so. And so he says the problem here is an injustice, again, because he gave what he said. Instead, the problem is jealousy. It is envy. It is selfishness. In short, the problem was sin. And he says this, he says, or do you begrudge my generosity? The literal translation for this in the Greek is, is your eye evil because I am good? The landowner asked whether they were seeing with an evil eye. Was their perspective wrong? And the answer is yes. And it gets to the root of the problem here. See, this isn't about the denarius you received. It's about the denarius they saw the other group received. You notice in verse 12, they complained. Look at how they framed their complaint. Okay? And you can miss this here, but it says, You made them equal to us, and not you made us equal to them. It wasn't just that they were upset about the pay they received. They were jealous that the others received the same pay as they did. They envied the generosity of the owner to people who they felt had not earned it as they had. The laborers could not be thankful because they were seeing with eyes from, from eyes of their perceived fairness. And they weren't seeing from eyes of grace. They were blinded by self-centered envy. And they, they coveted what belonged to others. Isn't that a problem for every one of us? If we're honest with ourselves, one of the first Phrases that we learn, and you can see this in your children's lives. You see it in your grandchildren. Uh, you maybe see it here in some of the godly children here at SWC, okay? It's this phrase, what? It's not fair, right? You don't have to teach them this. You don't have to sit them down. Here's how you pronounce it. Here are all the occasions in life for which you will find this useful. Let's, let's, practice, it to, let's practice it together, okay? It's not fair. You don't have to do that. It's instinctive. When they have to share a toy, it's not fair. When they can't play their games anymore, it's not fair. When they don't get their way, it's not fair. It's innate in every one of us. And we continue to even be like this and say it often as adults. You look at their jobs. And I have this one with bad hours and low pay. It's not fair. Look how easy they have things going for them. And how difficult life is for me. It's not fair. Look at their children. They seem to be so obedient and mine are not. It's not fair. Look at her husband. And how kind that he is and mine is so harsh. Look at his wife and how supportive that she is and mine is so combative. It's not fair. 
Look at all the breaks that they get and how few opportunities I have. It's not fair. The issue is that we look at life through the lens of our perceived fairness. All of us, we put on some lens whereby we look at the world. Realize this, none of us just experience the world, but we constantly interpret it. And for some of you, it's through these lens of fairness, where we are always seeing and feeling like we are owed something by family and by the world and the church, maybe even from God. But God desires for us to get up each morning instead. And to not put on the lenses of fairness, but to put on the lenses of grace. To see the gospel. That Christ would give his life for sinners like you and me. To see that grace is amazing once again. That the God of this universe would be mindful of me, would love me, would give me the greatest thing in his son. That's grace. It's not to say that some days aren't difficult. And it's not to deny that there are injustices in this world. And it's not to argue that that you, you aren't going through a severe trial right now in your life. I don't know. But it's when you put on these lenses of grace, you realize that most days are better than we deserve. That even the hard days that you have, you work to believe that they are for your good and for his glory. And when people succeed, you rejoice with them and you smile because God is gracious. See, the grace that you have come to see in the gospel is the same grace that God continues to show you in all that you have. And when we begin to have this perspective, instead of experiencing life as a series of disappointments, you experience life as a gift. And whatever good in life that you have, you say, this is God's grace. And this is such a profoundly different way of viewing the world. And it is when we look through the lens of grace and in the light of the gospel, the world will look much different than we once knew. And it will look like a better place. And God will appear as he truly is, gracious and good. Let us go before Let us bask in the gospel. Let us remember his grace and celebrate it as we live our lives in light of who he is and what he has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning for reminding us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
we were undeserving of anything but judgment. And yet, Lord, you give to us grace. Help us, Lord, to have hearts of gratitude for this great salvation that we have in Christ. Not going about life feeling a sense of entitlement, but seeing all that we have as better than we deserve and all that we have as a grace from your hands. And Lord, stir and grow our affections for you and have us leave this place and go about life amazed by your grace. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.